It's summer, a great time to catch up on episodes you may have missed from the Reconsidering Back catalog. So we're re-airing an episode that made a big impression on listeners, and even some of our guests. Whether you're lounging on a beach or puttering in the garden, we hope you enjoy this special Rewind episode with Brad Stolberg, author of The Practice of Groundedness. This is Reconsidering, the podcast about how to make a life while making a living, or something we like to call the alchemy of satisfaction. I'm Aaron Walter. I'm Meredith Black. And this is Bob Baxley. Hustle culture keeps us grinding, busy, overcommitted, rushed, and subsequently ungrounded. It's a phenomenon that Brad Stolberg calls heroic individualism, And it's something he knows all too well from his own life, but also from his performance coaching work with people doing their best to reach their peak. Brad wants to shake us out of the hustle mindset and help us find a more grounded, sustainable existence. His book, The Practice of Groundedness, provides the framework. In our conversation with Brad, he shows us how to neutralize negative talk, be present in the moment, and recognize that how we spend our time day to day is ultimately how we spend our life. After this quick break, join Meredith, Bob, and me, Aaron Walter, for a conversation with Brad Stolberg on Reconsidering. Over the past very difficult year, many people have asked themselves, how can I use my skills and my talents to help out and have a meaningful impact. U.S. Digital Response is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that connects volunteer technologists with governments to help meet the critical needs of the public. Already, more than 7,000 people have raised their hands to volunteer their time and their skills. And they've helped more than 200 communities in 36 states and territories across the U.S. address some of the challenges related to elections, unemployment benefits, food security, COVID vaccinations, and so much more. There is work to be done and impact to be made. Sound interesting? Sign up to volunteer and learn more at usdigitalresponse.org. That's usdigitalresponse.org. Hey, I'm Brad Stahlberg, and I am a writer and a coach. So, Brad, you know, we do this lightning round set of questions. You ready to play? Ready as I'm going to be. <laughs> okay, here we go. Paper or plastic? Paper. Morning or night? Morning. Library or coffee shop? Coffee shop. Window or aisle? Aisle. Text or voicemail? Text. Screen or paper? Paper. Pencil or pen? Pen. Typewriter or calculator? Oh, are you kidding? Typewriter. Planned or spontaneous? Planned. Truth or dare? Truth. Habit or practice? Practice. Cardio or strength? Both. Guided or unguided? Guided. Lost in a crowd or home alone? Home alone. Fishing or farming? Farming. Tortoise or hare? Tortoise. Passionate or practical? Practical. Han Solo or Darth Vader? 
Han Solo. Montaigne or Seneca? That's so tough. Huh, depends on the day. I contain multitudes, both. Nice. Shakespeare or Einstein? Shakespeare. Dictionary or thesaurus? Thesaurus. Beauty or wisdom? Impossible to separate. Poetry or prose? Prose. Nice. Thanks for playing. Love it. That's going to be some kind of cool validated tool in the future. <laughs> <laughs> or like one of those one of those New York Times, you know, look someone in the eye and ask them 30 questions. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Brad, as you mentioned, you're a, a performance coach. You're also an author and you do a fair bit of research too. I think many people are familiar with the idea of a leadership coach or maybe an executive coach, but they might not have heard of a performance coach before. Could you tell us a little bit about what you do and what goes into being a performance coach? Yeah, so there's a lot of overlap with what I do and what I guess would probably be conventionally known as executive coaching. The majority of my clients are executives, entrepreneurs, and physicians. I actually only work with a couple of athletes. I call it performance coaching because I operate with the first principle that performance is performance. So it doesn't really matter if you are trying to be a great leader at a startup, if you are trying to be a lawyer, a writer, an athlete, the fundamental principles of sustainable performance and success are all the same. Obviously, the application of those principles is very different depending on the context that you're in. And I coach towards those principles. And coaching is a very interesting industry right now because it's really burgeoning and it's unregulated. So there are wonderful coaches and there are handfuls, more handfuls is very generous of charlatans out there. And what I will do with new clients is I will ask them to read at least one of my books and I make it really clear. I coach on the principles in my books and that's my certification in this unregulated world. So let's dive into your book, The Practice of Groundedness, or one of the books that you've written. You've provided some pretty enlightening stats right off the bat. You say one in five people are suffering from clinical depression at any given time. The World Health Organization classifies burnout as a medical condition. They classified that in 2019. And then you start to explain that one of the causes might be from this term called heroic individualism. For the listeners, what is heroic individualism and how can listeners identify if they suffer from it? So I think of heroic individualism is a game of one-upsmanship against yourself and others where measurable achievement is the main arbiter of success and the finish line is always 10 yards down the field. So you think that you're going to eventually arrive or eventually feel fulfilled or eventually be content if only I get this promotion, have that car, have that romantic partner, live in this geography. So you strive really hard for that thing and you get there and maybe there is a day of fulfillment or a week or maybe you're lucky and there's a month, but then after that, the feeling of needing more comes back. And heroic individualism is the unaware chase of more, more, more. The second part of your question, how do you know that you might be suffering from heroic individualism? 
the most common symptoms that I see manifest are a feeling of exhaustion, a feeling that when you are working, you believe that you're working too hard and you wish that you weren't. But when you try to take time off and truly unplug, you can't and you feel restless and you feel like you should be working. So it's like you're stuck in your trapped. As I mentioned, this kind of dual feeling of exhaustion and restlessness, feelings of emptiness, feelings of not being enough, feeling like you'll never be content, and an anxiety or depressive feeling can also manifest at times as well. You have this idea about real fatigue versus fake fatigue. And sometimes it's hard to really know what's going on, especially when you're not at your best. How do you identify that with the folks that you coach when they're feeling a real fatigue of too much work? Right. So first, let's define the terms. Real fatigue is when your mind-body system has experienced enough load, distress, whatever it might be that you actually need to shut down. You need to sleep. You need to unplug. You need to spend a weekend, a week, a month off in a cabin in bed reading fiction. <laughs> Big fatigue is when your mind-body system is tricking you into feeling tired. It's telling you, hit the snooze button, don't get out of bed, don't go to work, don't just get started. But additional rest actually won't help you. If anything, it might continue to hold you back. And it's important to differentiate between these because the action that you want to take to improve is quite different. So for real fatigue, when you're actually tired, you need to rest. For fake fatigue, when your mind-body system is in a rut or tricking you into being tired, you actually need to start to just get going, even if you don't want to. So in the research, this is called behavioral activation, and it is the gold standard for treating depressive exhaustion. And fake fatigue is just a derivative of that. And what behavioral activation says is that you don't need to feel good to get going. You need to get going to give yourself a chance at feeling good. So then how to delineate which one you're feeling? It is extremely challenging particularly because oftentimes what starts as real fatigue turns into fake fatigue. You get like stuck in a rut. So the heuristic that I use is if you're feeling really exhausted at first, treat it like it's real because the consequences of ignoring it are you get sick, you truly suffer from burnout. It gets really bad. So take some deep time off for some deep rest. After a couple of days, maybe a week, start to try to move yourself towards action again. And at that point, if your mind-body system is still like, no, I'm too tired, no, I'm too tired, that's when you try to push through. And then if pushing through doesn't turn it around, well, then maybe it's time to see a therapist, to see a physician. So those are my heuristics for trying to figure out which is which. How is this different from burnout? I think that burnout is much more endemic and much longer lasting. So I think that Burnout is what happens if you've got a lot of real fatigue and you keep pushing through it without any break. And then suddenly no long weekend is going to help you snap out of it. You need much more than that. Burnout can also happen when you're in a career or a job or a marriage or a community or some combination of all those things that is just completely crushing your soul. And again, no amount of rest or 
just moving yourself into action is going to help. I think the other really important thing with this mood follows action concept is it goes against so much of what were peddled in like self-help and self-improvement talk, right? So your thoughts cause your feelings. So think positive thoughts. The whole concept of that popular book, The Secret, that like you give off an energy and you just have to have the right energy. Well, thanks to like third wave behavioral therapies, we know that that's all bullshit. So thoughts arise randomly. They're very contextual. They're based on a gazillion factors. Feelings are the same. All that you can control is how you respond to those thoughts and feelings. And what behavioral activation says is that you don't have to wake up in the morning motivated to crush it, to have a great day, to work out, to start writing that paper, whatever it is. Sometimes you just have to start doing the thing and then the motivation follows. And I think particularly right now, having been through this pandemic, still going through this pandemic, I think a lot of people are starting to realize that they can't will themselves to be in a positive state of mind. But if they follow that negative state all the way down, well, then you're just stuck in bed for a week. And that's a slippery slope to true depression. You know, we started this podcast in the context of the pandemic. It does seem like it's opened up a national conversation, presumably an international conversation about mental health and, you know, how to live a more fulfilled life. You know, have you seen a big shift in your clients and how they're approaching performance? Like, have you seen people have to take a step back and kind of reconsider what's going on and ask themselves some of these, you know, really very fundamental human questions about how do I want to live and what's really going to make me happy? Absolutely. I mean, this podcast is perfectly timed. You don't need me to tell you that. I think so many people are reconsidering. I think for two predominant reasons. The first is that mortality became much less abstract for lots of people. Same thing with morbidity. So for the non-health people, death and just quality of life became really tangible, concrete things. And community was taken away along with so many of the things that we normally use to distract ourselves from reconsidering because reconsidering is hard and it takes work and it's often uncomfortable. And I think the combination, I guess I named three things of those three things has led to, you know, a great reconsidering. And the outcome of that for lots of people is a great reshuffling, resignation, relocation, a lot of re's, regrounding, hopefully. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, reading your book, and, you know, obviously we're reading a lot of things about this topic for the show now, you know, and so many of them point back to foundational texts from the Stoics and from Buddhism and Taoism. I mean, it seems like so many of us are referencing things that were written thousands of years ago. Do you feel like, humans have had this figured out for a while and we're just rediscovering the ancient wisdom? Or do you think there's some fundamentally new concepts that we're coming up with now? I think both. I think that it is the human condition to want more than you have. Heroic individualism, I think, is in our DNA. So when we evolved from primates to humans, food was scarce. And if you had a big kill and you were content, that was very bad because you don't know when famine's going to happen. So you have the big kill, you eat, and then you start hunting again. So in a time of scarcity, which is how we evolved, it was hugely advantageous to constantly be thinking of, planning for, desiring, wanting the next thing. We no longer live in that time of scarcity. Consumer capitalism is very smart. It makes us feel like there's scarcity and like we always need more. 
So we're swimming in this water that tells us you are not enough, you don't have enough, your career isn't enough, your relationship isn't enough, more, more, more. And combined with our DNA to want more, I think it's created a lot of this heroic individualism. I think that ancient wisdom traditions are so ripe with teachings that can help us during this time, because as I said, this is the human condition. I think now it's just in total overdrive. And again, during the pandemic, it wasn't just the morbidity and mortality, but a lot of the normal ways that we distract ourselves were taken away from us. Yeah. So that's interesting because when I was reading your book, you talk about community and how community is important to feeling grounded. And you mentioned, you know, it might be easier to go to the gym on your own versus, you know, working out with somebody else, but the rewards are much greater with, you know, having the social experience, so to speak. But now we are so deep into this global pandemic and that sense of community seems to be waning for so many people and isolation is, you know, more present than ever. If community is such an important key to groundedness, how do you achieve this in a pandemic? And, you know, more importantly, like, is social media a good thing during this period of time? Because it does allow people to feel connected. Okay. So lots to unpack there. It's a great question. So how do you achieve it in a pandemic? Well, the first thing is get vaccinated. (laughs) And thank God for science, that gets you a lot closer to being able to achieve community. Pandemics end. It doesn't mean COVID will end, but eventually COVID will become a seasonal flu or even better, a cold. So I think we're getting close enough to that point where for most people, a vaccine and a mask in certain settings probably opens up the opportunity for community right now, if not very soon. It's less helpful to focus on pandemic getting in the way of community in the future, more so what do we learn from when it did, which was, wow, it feels pretty crappy to not be able to have in-person physical community. Isolation and loneliness, these were problems before the pandemic. The pandemic no doubt exacerbated them. My hope is that the pandemic also was such a pendulum swing in the direction of no community that now the pull for community will be really strong and will develop it. So why weren't we developing deep community even before the pandemic? Well, such a part of heroic individualism, right? This one-upsmanship, measurable achievement is being super efficient and optimizing. It's hustle culture. It's hacking your way to success. Well, building community is not efficient. (laughs) Like, at least not in the short term, it is so much easier to text than to call. It's easier to call than to video. It's easier to video than to meet in person. Layer on the complexity of COVID, well, now you've got to meet in person outside. So there are all of these additional kind of obstacles to getting together with people. And if you're so achievement focused, well, deep bonds are going to get completely cannibalized by the need for more, more, more. Yet, I argue in the book, and there's lots of research to support this claim, that it's actually not the more, more, more that makes us feel good. It's the community. And I think that everybody knows this. It's just simple, not easy. So like the example that I give is when, you know, you could close your eyes and picture two ways to spend a weekend. In one way, could be launching a new product or constantly refreshing your sales rank or your dashboard or your report and just like feeling the excitement and the thrill of like trying to have success out in the world, trying to be relevant, trying to have your business be relevant. Or you could be on a camping trip or a hike 
or just hanging out with your closest friends, sipping on bourbon or drinking coffee. And most people actually prefer the latter because community gives you a real sense of ease and belonging and like things are okay right now. Whereas that excitement of pushing is actually a lot closer to anxiety than to ease. A lot of the folks that presumably that you coach, and I think this is probably in Bob Meredith and I to a certain degree, is this idea of optimizing oneself, of like being more efficient. You use this phrase hustle culture. And in the tech world, that certainly is in many of us. What are the dangers of that, of optimizing our life? Because to a certain degree, like that can be a good thing, right? We can be more efficient. But you use this phrase, this concept or metaphor in the book of the hungry ghost. Maybe you could speak to that too. What are the dangers of over-optimizing our lives? Right. So the biggest danger is that you don't live your life or you're not present for it because you're so busy optimizing it. So you're counting all your steps instead of like taking them and really being where you are as you take them. You're measuring all this stuff and you're focused on the measurement more than the thing. So you're putting something between you and the experience of your life. I think you see this particularly in the tech world with all of these sleep trackers. So the data on the sleep tracker shows that for the majority of people, they result in worse sleep because now you're worried about how well you're going to sleep. And I tweeted a long time ago, it did really well. So, it, you know, I, I don't, I'm not that big time. I don't have a huge Twitter thing, but it gives me a pulse on what people might be thinking. And I said, no wonder everyone's tired because we've made sleep just another part of work because now we have a sleep dashboard. So I think the danger of optimizing is everything becomes work and the thing that we're measuring separates us from our lived experience of the world. Now, as you rightly pointed out, Aaron, some level of efficiency or optimization is really beneficial. So it's this non-dual scenario where you want to try to get better to a point and then stop trying to get better and accept where you are. And it's really hard for people to find that line of diminishing marginal returns or even negative returns. How do we know that line? Where do we see it? What are some specific things that might manifest that would give us a clue of like, okay, I've, I've crossed the line of optimization here? The easiest way to ask is, are you actually like getting what you want out of the thing? So if you're tracking your sleep, is your sleep getting better? And if it is, great. If you're tracking your nutrition or your steps, are you eating better or taking more steps? And like, how do you actually feel? about those steps that you're taking or the food that you're eating. Because work is work, but our life shouldn't necessarily be this game of like needing to hit a certain scorecard. And I think that in like particularly these optimization crowds, the goal becomes winning the game instead of living life. And I could be so much more optimal on everything in my life, but I don't think I'd enjoy it much. Like I like carbohydrates. I don't care if they might take a couple minutes off my life. A croissant tastes really good. And I'm a pretty fit dude, you know? So like, again, for somebody that is really struggling with diabetes or metabolic syndrome, is some level of tracking with the help of a medical professional helpful? Absolutely. For the tech bro that's already in good enough shape, 
is like not eating croissants because it's going to affect your ketogenesis score or whatever the hell it is healthy? I don't think so. Yeah, I think you're hitting on something kind of interesting here about how we use technology to manage the, if you will, the quantified self. You know, it's really easy to turn all that stuff on and get caught up in closing your rings or monitoring your stock portfolio or like all these things that have been digitized and turns into numbers. It's easy to monitor them and monitoring them feels like action. And what you're describing is kind of interesting that monitoring is not action. Like if you're going to monitor it, monitor it because you want to impact the number, like just sitting and being a passive observer of your daily step count is not really useful. But I want to push back on that for just a second. Yeah. Because I do think that gamification as, you know, what we call it in the tech world or like closing your rings and, and, you know, Bob and I compete on our Apple watch all the time. There's something motivating about that too. Like it's not necessarily a negative, right? There's a motivator. Like for me, it gets me to get up and go on a run every day to know that I'm going to close my rings. Maybe I don't feel great after the run, but I still went on the run and I know that, for health reasons, it's probably going to make me feel a lot better, you know, and not every day is perfect, just like any athlete has, but like, you still got to get up and go, right? So I'm confused. It depends. People don't like confusion. People want six steps to be healthier in six days, right? They don't want, it depends. But I think with all of this tracking, again, it depends. Mm -hmm. If it's motivating you to get out the door and run, and as you said, Meredith, you don't enjoy every run, but you know that in the long haul, you feel better because of it, and you wouldn't do it without the watch, Great. If it leads to shame and guilt and self-judgment when you miss a run, or if you're holding yourself back because you actually could run further or faster, but your watch is telling you not to, well, then it gets in the way. I've written before and I've written this in the book that like tracking works until it gets in your way. And that's the most helpful heuristic that I can offer. And when it gets in your way is going to be different for every person and everything that they're tracking. I'll say two other things. The first to Bob's point about watching the thing and getting excited versus actually doing it, this is a big part of the practice of groundedness. In the book, I use the analogy of brown rice versus peanut M&Ms. And my own like watching obsession as an author is my Amazon sales rank. So for better or worse, most people buy books from Amazon. Your Amazon sales rank is the best real-time indicator of how your book is doing. You can sit there like a mouse in a dopamine experiment and freaking refresh that thing a million times a day. And it feels great the first time you refresh it, and maybe even the 10th time. But by the millionth time, you feel like crap. When you could have been writing your next book, making love with your partner, going on a walk, staring at the wall, just about anything. So I've been down that rabbit hole enough to realize, or at least catch myself after like the 20th refresh, like, hey, this is going to just make you feel empty and like crap. I use this as an analogy or as an anecdote is what I meant to say, but we all have this. So in our life, there are like the deep fulfilling things that are generally harder to get started, but make us feel better when we've done them. Intimate time with other people, creative work, actually doing the thing. And then there are all of these things that feel great in the moment, are super easy to get started, but if we do them for a long time, make us feel like crap. Checking your sales rank, tweeting, reading the comments, doing like the lowest hanging fruit that doesn't actually move the ball down the field. And those are like peanut M&Ms. If you have peanut M&Ms and brown rice in front of you, you always eat the peanut M&Ms. They're just so much tastier. But if you eat peanut M&Ms for like a whole day or a week or a month or a year, you start to feel like crap. Whereas if you eat brown rice 
for a whole day, week, month, or year, you actually feel pretty good. And I think, you know, back to design and designing your life, I think a meaningful, fulfilling, grounded life, a big part of it is making the choice to eat brown rice, even though in the moment peanut M&Ms taste better. And when you fail and when you start binging on peanut M&Ms, just pay close attention to how you feel afterwards because it makes it a little bit less likely that you will. And then the last thing is trying to surround yourself with brown rice and keep the peanut M&Ms out of the house. Sorry, that was a lot. No, that was a really great example because my next question to you is going to be like, how do you break those habits? Right? Because I think like, you know, again, I'll go back to my Apple Watch. Even though I know psychologically nothing's going to happen if I don't hit my ring numbers, like I still can't break it. Right? Like I still, I like still got to keep going. What are some tips you give people in terms of like how it's okay to break those habits and how it's okay to change your habits and make a new habit? Yeah. So a couple of things. It's okay to binge on M&Ms sometimes. Not if you're a diabetic, but if you're not a diabetic, it's okay. And what I mean by that is the first three days my book comes out, I just let myself go nuts. I know I'm going to feel like crap, but I'm a human. I'm not perfect. There's an Amazon sales rank. I'm not going to like resist checking it because the amount of effort it's going to take to resist checking it is like probably worse than just checking the damn thing. So not trying to be perfect, I think, is really important. The second thing is when enough is enough, knowing that you're going to have to ride this wave of really what feels like anxiety by not doing the thing that you want to do. And often that wave can last for a couple of weeks. And just having that expectation that things are going to get worse before they get better is so helpful. So in the literature, they call this exposure and response prevention. And what this means is you want to expose yourself to the thing that gives you anxiety and then not do the response that eliminates the anxiety. And unless there's a real outcome that's negative associated with it, eventually your mind-body system reprograms. So in your case, Meredith, the exposure response prevention would be not entering your rings or not closing your rings, knowing that it's going to make you really anxious and just sitting with that anxiety and not doing it. And then after a month of not doing it, my guess is that you wouldn't really care about doing it anymore. Yeah. I think it's the same thing with checking social media right when you wake up. I mean, it's all of these little like addictions that we've developed that maybe at certain times are helpful, but when they become entrenched habits, we become less grounded and more frenetic and frantic because we're constantly pinging between all these things. Yeah, my kids, my son was born in 1998, my daughter in 2000. And of course, I was working at Apple starting around 2006. So they came of age with the iPhone. They were almost just perfectly positioned to come of age with the iPhone and Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff. It's been interesting watching their trajectory with social media. And I was wanted to get your thoughts on whether or not you think it's representative, because it feels like both of them, they went through periods where they were spending an enormous amount of time, you know, particularly my daughter on Instagram, which is sort of a, you know, a classic example And then eventually they kind of both made their way out of it. And at this point, neither one of them have any meaningful time spent on social media, really. And they've sort of figured out how to integrate it in their life in a much more, I don't know if I'd say positive, but certainly not negative way. You know, what you were describing with your own monitoring of the Amazon sales rank, like, do you think like socially, we're just like, as a culture, we're just figuring out this new medium of social media and we're going to get better at managing it as opposed to kind of the scourge that it seems to have been over the last 
five, six, seven years? I don't know. I think it's something that I'm paying close attention to with a younger son myself. And I do wonder, growing up with this, being a digital native or a social media native, I guess, in this case, will it have the same effect? It's hard to say because the older generation on Facebook in particular has totally gone off the rails. Like you look at where most of these crazy conspiracy theories come from, and it's like the 70 and up cohort on Facebook. And I think it's just like a lot of misinformation fast without like social media literacy has caused big issues. Whereas for your kids, for my son, I don't know. Here's what the research has. Social media in and of itself is not bad. It's a tool. And like any tool, it can be used for good. It can be used for bad. So a hammer is a tool. If you take a hammer to your head, it's not very beneficial. If you take a hammer to a a nail in the wall, it does the job. And social media, when used as a way station, meaning as a place to meet interesting people that then you will do something offline with or engage in a more intimate way than Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter lets you, is positive. When social media becomes the end, then it is negative. So my sense is that the way that y'all got in touch with me was through social media, and now we're having this wonderful conversation. Social media is a net positive. If I wasn't on Twitter, you might have never seen my stuff. We might not be talking. Now, if social media is the end point, and it's just constantly reading tweets, and you never take it to this next level, then you don't get this intimate connection, which is where the real fulfillment happens. That is not to say anything of the like keeping up with the digital Joneses element of social media, which the research shows is unfortunately only detrimental. So like the filtering of pictures and the filtering of lives, that does not help anyone. Now there's a chance that young people growing up will just learn that it's all bullshit a lot quicker because it's all that they know and they won't be as affected by it. I mean, There's all kinds of research on airbrush pictures and magazines. And I remember when I was growing up, that was a huge concern for women, but also men, just body image issues, because everyone was airbrushed. And I think that there's some research that shows that it does have an effect, but the effect's a lot smaller than people think, because we grew up with that. So maybe this is very optimistic, but you know, hopefully my son and and your kids are going to grow up knowing that all that stuff is, like I said, bullshit, and they won't be as affected by it. But that's not to say that like there's not and there shouldn't be great concern about the use of particularly Instagram in young people's mental health and body image issues. In the book, Brad, you talk about the principle of acceptance, that this is a really important role in getting better at anything. And sometimes acceptance could be accepting that you're not at your peak right now or that you're not able to do this thing that you've been working so hard to achieve. It's just, it's not possible. You're not going to reach it. You talk about in there that resistance, the opposite of acceptance, that it makes suffering stickier. It's a, like kind of a Buddhist ideal that desire is suffering. You say the more you fight it, the stronger it comes back. Could you tell us a little bit about acceptance and how that works in our lives and how it can be used to make us more grounded. Yeah. How much time you got? (laughs) Plenty of time. (laughs) All right. So I'm going to start broad and then I'm going to go narrow and more personal. So broad, there is a parable out of Buddhism of the second arrow. And the parable is as follows. The first arrow that hits you, you cannot control. 
That could be something that happens externally, situationally. It can be a thought. It can be a feeling. You don't have to like it. The second arrow, which is how you react to that first arrow, you can control. And you can accept it. And then the arrow just hits you and it's done. Or you can fight against it. You can deny that it's happening. You can engage in magical thinking about it. You can repress it. And those are all second, third, fourth, fifth arrows. And the teaching is that those arrows, as you mentioned, they hurt worse than the first arrow. And the quicker that we can accept something, first off, its edge over us goes away because it's often the not liking of the thing that is worse than the thing itself. And the quicker that we can actually do something productive about it to try to make it better. So that's the broad. The personal and how I learned about this is when I was 30, I was totally blindsided by really bad obsessive compulsive disorder, which is often with no male intent, quite misportrayed in the popular culture. So people hear OCD, they think of being a neat freak or having your desk in order. If you all saw my working space, you'd realize that that must not be OCD because I am not a neat freak or or particularly organized, but clinical OCD is having intrusive thoughts, feelings, or urges, and then trying to do something to make them go away. So in the case of someone with like contamination OCD, the thought, feeling, or urge is like they have germs on their hands and they have to wash their hands quite literally thousands of times a day to make those germs go away. My OCD, my intrusive thoughts were about the nature of the meaning of life and the point of life and trying to figure out what the point of life is. And it's an unanswerable question. And my compulsion was trying to answer that question. So I'd have this thought that at the time was associated with a lot of anxiety. That's the first arrow. And for me, the second, third, and fourth arrows were wrestling with it, trying to figure it out, being scared about it, being upset that I had it. And I learned in my own recovery from OCD that acceptance is by far the most effective psychological tool that you can have for these types of intrusive thoughts, feelings, things that you can't control. Because the pushing against it just makes the thing stronger. So we talked about in ancient Eastern wisdom traditions, this is the second arrow. In modern clinical therapy, this is the backbone of acceptance and commitment therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and dialectical behavioral therapy. All of those things say that you should change a shitty situation. You shouldn't accept living with OCD, depression, anxiety. But paradoxically, the way to change it, at least the first step of changing it, is by accepting it. I want to shift to another point that you talk about in the book that's important about feeling grounded, which is specifically about vulnerability. But my specific question to you is kind of in regards to imposter syndrome. So many people feel like they have imposter syndrome and they need to show people that they know what they're doing, right? How do we turn on that vulnerability switch, so to speak, and shift our mindset to tell ourselves that it's okay to not have the answers and it's okay not to be the imposter? So a couple of things. The first thing is that, yes, I think that vulnerability is having a moment and has continued to have a moment. The work of Brene Brown who is a researcher at University of Houston, has gone such a long way to help elevate vulnerability in, in the kind of zeitgeist. I think that the pendulum swung from no vulnerability to like extreme vulnerability and perhaps even some performative vulnerability. 
which is like, I read Brene Brown's book and I think vulnerability is like something I'm supposed to do. So I got to figure out how to be vulnerable so I can get more followers on Twitter. Exactly. Yeah. So my, my little heuristic for vulnerability is like actual vulnerability should feel uncomfortable. Like, even though I've done it a million times, when I just talked about my OCD, there's like, it's not a comfortable thing to talk about. It's not like, ooh, they're going to like this. and They're going to feel more connected to me. None of that is going through my mind-body system at the time. And if that is, then I think that's probably like more of this performative vulnerability. So let's first like say that we're talking about the real thing. How do you do it? I think that if you're a really rational, science-minded person, you look at the research, which shows that the more vulnerable you can be, the more self-confidence you gain because you really trust yourself and the closer your relationships become because you build trust with others that way. I think if you're more of a personal empiricist, I think if you just take stock of how heavy it can be to hold so much stuff inside or to like repress or push down stuff, And realizing that there's a way to get that weight off of you, which is just to go to those places and and to be vulnerable, sometimes with the help of a therapist or a coach in the communities that you're in, it goes a long way. So two kind of more like poetic parables, well, one's actually from a poet, and then one study. So poetic parables. So Maria Rayner Rilke, writes, I want to unfold for where I am folded, there I am a lie. And I interpret that as an ode to wanting to be vulnerable. Because what we tend to do is we tend to fold up over the parts of ourselves that are weak or that are broken or that we don't want to go to, we don't want to look at. And if we fold up over those parts, we can only trick ourselves for so long. Because we're lying. We're not being honest with ourselves about those parts. But when you unfold, when you're totally open, then you're no longer lying. So I think that's the mechanism that links vulnerability to true self-confidence. Because if you go to those parts, well, then you can trust all of yourself. Long before Maria Rina Rilke, in ancient Greek mythology, there's this story about the god Pan. And Pan lived just outside of the village boundary. And if villagers would get lost and come across Pan, he was so mortifying and terrifying that they'd run away and they'd be paralyzed to death and they'd trip over stones and rocks and they would die from fear. A couple of brave villagers deliberately went to go see Pan. And for those villagers, Pan bestowed upon them wisdom and kindness and strength. So to me, that parable says that Pan, those are like our own cracks. Those are our vulnerabilities. And if you're constantly trying to avoid them and you stumble on them, they're going to totally mess you up. Whereas if you go toward them, you'll gain wisdom, compassion, empathy, and strength. The science, researchers at a university of Manningham in Germany, they did a fascinating series of studies where they had people that just met, similar to us, have intimate conversations. And they instructed the sharer to be really vulnerable. And again, not performative. Mental illness, grief, divorce, all kinds of stuff like that. And what they found is that after the conversation, the person doing the sharing felt really uncomfortable and weak, but the person on the receiving end felt that that person embodied strength and that they trust that person. So not only do we build trust with ourselves when we're vulnerable, because again, we come to know all of ourselves, but it also is what builds trust with other people. 
So, Brad, in, throughout your book and throughout our conversation here, you've quoted a bunch of different research from all sorts of different sources, ancient texts, like modern science, modern thinkers, all sorts of stuff. And obviously, this is a quest, an endeavor that you went into with a lot of energy and passion. And you know, you talked about your struggle with OCD around, the, around this issue of unweaving the puzzle of life. I'm sort of curious, in the research, was there anything that you came across that was just like completely unexpected, like just potentially like just really shifted your thinking or just bounced off your world model to something really, really surprising for you? I wouldn't necessarily say it was so surprising because I think I was starting to feel this, but I think the research gave it like language and a conceptual framework. And that is that self-discipline and self-compassion, which are often portrayed as these polar opposites, are actually perfect complements. So you think about like the genre of leadership or personal development or even business books, and you've got the Navy SEALs writing books about waking up at 4 a.m. and crushing it and self-discipline and pull yourself up by the bootstraps and personal responsibility. And then on the other end of the aisle, you got the let's all hold hands and sing kumbaya and everything is a structural problem and love each other and love ourselves. And the truth is to varying degrees for most things in life, you need both. And just particularly at an individual level, like marrying self-compassion, realizing that no situation is totally your doing. Some are completely not your doing and being kind to yourself, realizing that while at the same time, mustering some self-discipline to try to improve, that is the only sustainable path forward in doing anything that's hard. And I think that again, I was starting to like feel this, but it really gave me a language for it. And I think I was feeling it because my own experience in psychotherapy was just that, that like I had to learn self-love, but at the same time, I also had to have a lot of self-discipline because that's how you get through something like OCD, anxiety, depression. It's not just about self-love, it's about doing really hard things. But if you do those really hard things without the self-love, the self-compassion, that's not sustainable either. So that was something that was neat. And then something else is this notion of grit and fit. And grit is this really popular psychological framework that in the most layperson's terms says that you should like have a lot of stick-to-itiveness and hang in there and be really persistent and then good things will happen. And because of the work of Angela Duckworth, phenomenal behavioral scientist, grit like completely blew up. And people started to label individuals as that's a gritty person. When in fact, the actual research shows that there's no such thing as a gritty person. There are people that have good match quality with what they're doing and then can embody grit. So this research really came home for me. I write about this in the book to bring this point home because I think it's such a great little example and it's myself. So I was really crappy at math and science. In high school, like I decided that chemistry was too hard, so I phoned it in and took a C. And I was put in AP calculus, and I decided to drop out. I thought I was going to be an econ major at University of Michigan. After two lectures in Econ 401, I quit both the course and the major. So if you look at me in math and science, I am like an ultimate quitter. You know, whatever grit is, I am the opposite. Whereas if you look at my career in writing, I got rejected from journalism school in high school. I got rejected from the University of Michigan School newspaper. I've submitted countless 
op-eds and articles and essays that have been rejected. No one wanted my first book, but I kept trying. And now I write for places like the New York Times. I've published this book. I've published other books. So as a writer, I look like I'm the embodiment of grit. So it's not that I am either gritty or not. It's that I actually have a really good fit with writing and not with math and science. So the shorthand for that is you need fit before you get grit. And I think that's so important, especially as a parenting lesson, because what it says is actually don't try to have your kid be the gritty prodigy starting at age eight. Have your kid try a bunch of stuff so they can figure out what they like and what they're naturally inclined towards. And then they'll be gritty on their own. And it's a lot easier to be gritty if you like the thing that you're doing and you're good at it. You must have learned a lot personally through this research as a writer, the pieces that you write. It sounds like you bring a lot of your personal experience into your writing as well. And then as you coach people, finding a framework that's talked about in this book and imparting that framework or training people around that framework, surely that has informed your life a great deal. So presumably this has been a pretty amazing journey for you over the past 10 plus years of doing this. But I wonder if you could just for a minute go back and imagine the 25-year-old Brad. And that Brad hasn't had the luxury of going through all of this research and training and doesn't have all of his insight, but he still has something, something to share with you today. What would the 25-year-old Brad advise you now if you two could meet? Uh, so you reversed this question. It's so much easier when Brad now is going back to 25-year-old That's right. Brad. That's right. I love what you just did, but I don't love that I have to, to answer it. <laughs> and 25-year-old Brad was like a fine guy. He wasn't like a douchebag or anything, but he was so driven and so wrapped up into what now I'd call heroic individualism mm-hmm. and so focused on metrics and improvement, I wouldn't advise myself now to like go back to that state of being wound up. You know what he'd say? He'd say, your partner, Caitlin, is a rock star and marry her. Mm. And then I did. (laughs) And now we've got a little three and a half year old monster that runs around. Again, like I liked myself at 25. I was fine. I was a decent person. I was in graduate school. I left McKinsey because I wanted to study public health. I could have never imagined that I was here. And I'm hard pressed to find something that 25 year old Brad would tell me now. Maybe he'd tell me like, don't totally like throw the baby out with the bathwater, like stay ambitious. But I clearly I am ambitious, right? Like I wrote this book. I think the marriage advice is pretty good. (laughs) You know, I mean, sounds to me like he had that one pretty dialed. Yeah, that's the real thing. And like, and listen to Caitlin, 25 year old Brad would have probably said that and probably still need to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) there is some wisdom in youth yeah where can people learn more about you the best place to learn more about me and my thinking and the way that i coach is the new book the practice of groundedness and then on the internet the only social media i'm on is twitter where i'm at b stalberg and then my website is just my name www.bradstalberg.com And I co-host a podcast called The Growth Equation, which tackles topics that I write about. Well, Brad, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. 
Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking with this great, wonderful trio. So thanks for having me. Where to start? I found the book to be very helpful. Same. I liked the framework that he has for kind of understanding how to be grounded and naming it and pointing out all the different dimensions. But the thing that I found most useful is just naming heroic individualism, this phenomenon of people kind of participating in an echo chamber of one-upsmanship. It's feeling like you always have to be performative. You have to be optimizing, moving forward, showing people that you're making progress. And in doing so, other people feel that pressure as well, which then creates pressure back on you. It's a really negative feedback loop that I think probably a lot of people, if you are participating in social media, participating in the world, you can identify with that and probably have your own experience that's pretty negative. I think the one thing that I really took away was, you know, Brad kind of teaches you how to talk to yourself, which I think is easier said than done. I think we are our own worst critics. And just some of the mantras and some of the sayings that he talks about, like, this is happening right now. I'm doing the best that I can. Or where you are today is where you are today. It's exactly where you need to be. And it's the key of getting where you want to go. It's not motivational. It's just very honest, right? And I think sometimes we don't think about that. I think sometimes we think about, okay, well, what's going to make us happy or what's going to make us motivated? But We never really have that honest conversation and set the expectations and baseline them. And I think he does a really good job throughout the book and also when he was talking to us about setting those expectations for ourselves. It's practical and it's really forgiving of the personal experience. I think anyone who's a parent can identify with, this is what's happening right now. I'm Mm -hmm. doing the best I can. When you've got a toddler pitching a fit or, you know, things aren't going your way, sometimes just get lost in like, you know, seeing red and the chaos of the moment. I'm with you, Meredith. I liked the way that he gives some guidance on how to address those moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, I mean, the book's structured really nicely that way, too. There's like six different principles that he goes through, you know. First one's acceptance, and then presence, and then patience, vulnerability, deep community, movement. You know, we spent a lot of time, I think, really just kind of talking about the first one, which was acceptance. And one of the points he made towards the end that I really liked was fit and grit. You need fit before you need grit. Yeah, because so often, and he talked about it a little bit with the idea of fake fatigue versus real fatigue. And when do you just power through? And when are you able to accept that this is just who I am? This is how my brain works. This is the body I have. This is the context in which I'm living my life. And particularly in that grit thing, again, I thought it was interesting because all of us are good at something. And it's a lot of discovering what you are good at and then being okay, being good at that thing, almost setting aside the economic consequences of it. You know, when we look at the larger economy, we all think we have to be superstar earners or that, you know, we have to go into be a CEO. We have to want the promotion. And I know professionally, you, you know, as a manager, certainly you see people in your organization all the time where you're like, well, you're actually really well situated for a certain type of job. If I could just get you to love that job, you would be killer. And in my own life, you know, when I look at the professional failures I've had, I think all of them could be attributed to me trying to fit myself into a situation that wasn't really consistent with my natural abilities, my natural way of moving through the world. So I, I like that 
that whole idea of acceptance. This is just what's going on, man. This is who I am. This is the reality. And that, that's kind of all there is to it. Yeah, he also says in the book, how we spend our hours is how we spend our days. How we spend our days is how we spend our lives. I really liked that, the way of framing time, because the moments are where we are often, we're lost or we're found. You know, we, We're lost thinking about the future or regretting the past or you know, taken by the chaos of the moment. Or we're found that we actually are in a state of flow and we feel good about what we're doing. We feel a sense of connection with other people. And all of those moments add up to something bigger, which is our lives. And sometimes it's just hard to really understand the arc of a life. Or Brad talked about it, how he kind of struggled with this obsession with what is life about? What are we trying to figure out here? And it's too big a question, right? Like it's too daunting and overwhelming. But if I could think about it in terms of moments and, you know, striving for good grounded moments, it feels a lot more approachable. Yeah. And how powerful is that? That like, it's kind of one thing to write about vulnerability, mm -hmm. you know, and, and sort of talk about how important it is. And then we just kind of look at each other. It's like, okay, well you go first. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like, I mean, I mean, he's just out there with the OCD thing, you know, he just owns it and we didn't get into it so much with the interview, but you know, it is interesting that the most successful piece of writing that he has by his own admission was the article he wrote in outside magazine about his struggle with OCD. And, and it must've been a very powerful moment for him as an author to have exposed himself in that way. And then you get so much feedback and support coming back at you. And, and I mean, he talked about it here on the show and then he mentioned at the end that even though he's talked about it many, many times, it's still like that's real vulnerability because it still makes him uncomfortable. And it's just a tremendous act of courage. But it, it makes him approachable. And I think that's something that we all kind of have to learn from is that kind of putting ourselves out there makes it easier for people to put themselves out there and have that conversation with us too. Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kima Maraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.